Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. Do you ever find that your network isn't providing you with the inspiration and maybe the creative boost that you need to take your business or career to the next level? If so, it may mean that you need to devote some additional time to investing in different types of social capital. You may even need a specific strategy for doing so. As I talked about in last week's episode, episode 232, a great way of doing that is through professional conferences and networking events. If you missed that episode, I hope you'll go back and check it out. This topic is also a great way of teeing up a very special collaboration series that I'm rolling out today with a group that is very near and dear to my heart. They are called the Southern Sea. The Southern Sea is a professional and social organization that brings together entrepreneurs and founders who are committed to sharing both business strategies as well as creative ones in ways that often yield collaborative and innovative results. It is a fabulous organization. I am honored to be a member of this organization, and I'm excited to create this series with them, and most importantly, to share it with you. This is actually the second year that we've done this particular collaboration with the Southern Sea. It was incredibly successful last year, and I feel certain that you're going to love this year's lineup as well. With any sponsorships or collaborations that I do here at She Said, She Said podcast, it's important that you know it's always with a focus on how I can create interesting and hopefully inspiring content that is relevant to you, content that essentially meets you where you are in your journey as you think about career and personal development and, of course, our bigger theme of influence and how we can build and sustain it. As you have come to expect, you'll hear that theme of influence from our Southern Sea Collaboration guests as part of this series. You'll also hear great advice from them about how they built their businesses and their careers and specific advice and tips that they're going to share that you can put to use in your own life, which I love. 
Also, one more important point of note. If you happened to attend this year's Southern Sea Summit and heard the women who I'll be profiling as part of this series, I've made a point of working to find topics that I didn't think they covered as part of their presentation. So hopefully, if I have done my job well, you're going to learn even more about these amazing women than you did at this year's summit. I also think you'll get a lot of additional creative energy from this group. And my first guest in the series is a great example of that. In fact, creativity and how she thinks about it and curates it is one of several topics in our conversation. This week's guest to kick off the series is Dana Cowan. Dana is a highly respected, accomplished, and influential voice in the food and beverage space. In many ways, her 20-year helm at Food & Wine magazine actually shaped the way that Americans, maybe the world more broadly, think about food and wine. During Dana's tenure at Food & Wine, she elevated the role of chefs and food personalities and actually changed the public's understanding and appreciation for the work that happens behind the scenes in some of the most renowned and delicious dining establishments. She literally helped create the notion of celebrity chef. Dana also expanded food and wines coverage beyond more traditional French and Italian cuisine and helped introduce readers to a more diverse range of cuisines from places like Africa and Asia and Latin America. She also has helped to create more awareness around sustainability and ethical sourcing, as well as more awareness about food waste. Now, in our conversation today, Dana and I talk about her journey and specifically how someone without culinary expertise landed in the top job at Food & Wine. We talk about creativity and how she sparks her own, and she shares advice on how and why she started her zine and her podcast. Both are called Speaking Broadly. And we talk about some of the most important questions you should ask yourself before you consider doing either of those things. We also talk about how Dana thinks about and uses the tremendous influence that she's built over her career, including how she thinks about mentorship and some great advice for mentors and mentees alike. You are going to love it. Here is my conversation with the fabulously creative and talented Dana Cowan. Dana, welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. This is the first of our series of conversations that we're doing in collaboration with the Southern Couterie, and I'm very excited that you are our first guest for that. So let's jump in, Dana, and talk a bit about your story. A lot of people, as I said before, know about your accomplishments, but how did you get to be the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine? It was seemingly a very straight route. When I was in college at Brown University, I had a best friend who was getting a magazine internship for the summer, and I was like, well, that sounds like fun to me. And I wangled my way into an internship the summer of my junior year. And literally for 30 years running, I was in traditional media. So I 
graduated from college and the day I graduated, I got a job at Vogue magazine. And you would think Vogue magazine and food and wine, what do they have in common um, aside from both being magazines? But at Vogue, we learned so much about lifestyle. And I was in the features department, not fashion, which was very obvious from the clothes that I wore and everyone else in my department wore. Those fashion girls were amazing. And we did get to take a trip into the fashion closet, you know, um, secretly. So were you, you were more Anne Hathaway than Emily Blunt, is it fair to say? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well put. Um, So I just got my first job at Vogue, which is such a delight, learning all about photography, movies, architecture, design. I edited two columns at the end of my time there. One was on wine, and it was the worst written column in the magazine before I got it and after I got it. Um, So I learned that editing was not necessarily my skill, but it did set me up to know something of the language of wine. And the other column that I edited, which was also unreadable before and after, was a horoscope column. And I like all things horoscope, but back in the day, they it barely seemed like English. It was a lot of sun signs and moon risings. So from there, I went to another magazine, House and Garden, and through fate and luck and hard work, ended up getting promoted from the most junior job, uh, which is what I was hired into, to the second most senior job, which is managing editor. And so I became managing editor of this wonderful magazine working for Nancy Novograd. Um, I love houses. I love design. Uh, it was just like beautiful things all day long. And the, the beautiful thing that ended was the magazine folded. So I went from that to Mademoiselle, which is a magazine that doesn't exist right now either. But that was not my thing. That was Zed State's Boys. Triumph over tragedy. I mean, I like, you know, I like some of that, but not enough to spend my time there. So I found my way to food and wine, which at that time, so this is 1990. I mean, I probably started pitching myself for a job there in 93. And I got the job in 1994 by explaining to the person who was running the magazines as part of American Express Publishing that I foresaw a future for that brand that was all around the lifestyle that I knew so well. And it wasn't a, going to be a magazine about eggplant. And they bought the idea. They're like, okay, come on, we'll pay you like five cents. And if you do a good job and the magazine survives, great. And otherwise, you know, it's on its last legs. And if you kill it, like we'll deal with that later. So there was they took a huge risk on the one hand because I'd never been an editor-in-chief. And on the other hand, it was, you know, a very tipsy topsy turn time for the brand. And there weren't a lot of people with a lot of experience who were going to take this risk at something that was so on the edge. I got that job in 95 and was there for the next 21 years with the central idea that food was at the intersection of everything amazing in life. And that instead of looking at the way we live our lives through food or houses, the way we identify if you're a reader of food and wine is through those two topics. So add to that, that the Food Network launched in 94 and Food and Wine had had something called the Best New Chefs platform. 
I created this world of celebrating chefs and celebrating the way in which you could translate their ideas, food, travel, design, kitchens into your own life at home. And that was the foundation of that brand. Many others have followed in after. And now it's like, of course, it's at the center of life. And of course, chefs have changed our world. But at the time, chefs were basically still back in the kitchen. And they were just beginning to come out and walk among the tables, talk to the guests, you know, do some TV. No one had really had a chef on TV before. I mean, they had, of course, Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, but in a sort of populist, we're making news kind of a way. And that brings me, you know, to the, to up to food and wine. And I had an incredible team there who I, you know, sort of walked in the door and I started actually as executive editor. And their first question was essentially, what do you know about food? And I'm like, man, I don't really know a lot about food, actually. I'm here because I know a lot about writing and editing and lifestyle and I have a vision and they're like but you don't know about food <laughs> like I don't know about food um I'm gonna rely on all of you and so the team that food team is and was best in class amazing recipes fantastic testing great vision in that test kitchen and that whole team I love that. I love that. You know there's so, there's so many pieces of your story that I want to dive into but the one that that I've sort of thinking about right at this second is the you know the power of creativity that comes from having someone who doesn't necessarily eat breathe and live food even though I'm sure you love food like most people right but because you didn't come from a food background it enabled you to bring this broad array of other skills and experiences maybe talk a little bit about that i know you are passionate about creativity and innovation and you have so many amazing examples in your background of really embracing that but maybe sort of share some thoughts around creativity how we can build that how we can build that in ourselves how we can build that in our kids i love the creative life in fact for those who surround me and have to be like the structure and the type a's to my type wild. Um, I feel sorry for them <laughs> because every day I, I wake up and want to do some kind of project that feeds the creative mind. I think that's the core of creativity for anyone to either encourage it in others or to build it in yourself is to be constantly open, but not open like, oh, is creativity going to come to me? But Open as in, I don't know exactly what thing I'm going to do today to expand my mind. Or if you're a planner, you can plan it. I'm not a planner. What is that thing? So for me, I live in New York City. I have carved out one afternoon a week to go and find, and it doesn't matter the afternoon, that's the not planning part, to find either a new place that I haven't been. Of, and so often... A lot of my discovery is in the restaurant zone where there's creativity galore, but I also expose myself to all kinds of other creativity, which would be the creativity of nature, right? Like you might live in a place where there isn't other types. There's not a great art gallery, but nature is the most creative source on the planet or go to an art gallery or have a conversation with someone I don't know. I find that in my case, a lot of my creativity is fueled through conversation, which 
makes sense since, as you said, I do have a podcast and a lot of the work that I do is around conversations. So if you're trying to jumpstart creativity, if you have the conversations with the same people all the time, your creativity might have the boundaries of your inspiration in terms of interaction. So I think always inviting new people in and finding their creativity. I was doing a podcast yesterday with someone named Brianna Warner, who has a company called Atlantic Sea Farms. And she has taken on essentially kelp as her mission in the US, helping save Maine lobstermen, their business, because if they farm kelp when they're not looking for for fishing for lobster, it saves an entire industry. But my mind and kelp and seaweed and what you can do with that is just amazing. And I wouldn't have gone down that road had I not spoken to her. I also believe that there's a font in create of creativity in nostalgia. So many of us are looking forward and say, what is it ahead of me that I don't know that can fuel my creativity? But, and as I'm sure many of your listeners know, there's much creativity that we start with that ends up bound and constricted by what we should do or what talent or skill looks like. And the greatest creativity is unleashed when you recognize that any expression at all that is unbound is creativity. And so that might be going back to drawing if when you were a kid you loved to draw, but lots of people told you you were terrible at it. This is what happened to me. I used to draw birds and I would copy them very assiduously and I just wasn't very good. And I got that message, but three years ago I started painting, but I didn't paint literal things because that's not my skill. I sort of painted emotions and I painted mantra cards for people. So I would send a set of three questions to people and say, you know, what's important to you? What are you afraid of? What do you wish for the future? And from those answers, I painted postcards with the words and sent it back to them. And it was a creative project unleashed because I thought like, I'd like to play with paint. I don't want to try to do something literal because I'm just you know, that's not satisfying to me. But let me try this other way of being creative and see what that feels like. And I loved it. That's amazing. It also strikes me too, because I, you know, we want to talk about your career pivot, but let's let's talk about the role that the way that you think about and embrace creativity has played in this major career pivot. Having been in a job for two decades is a very big deal for anyone, right? How did you make the decision to pivot? And kind of how, sort of what was the the process that you went through to get to that point? I think in the case of how did I decide to leave food and wine, I knew a solid four years in advance that I had done a lot of the same content over and over. And I was looking for what's next within that arena because I love the arena of food and I love editing. Um, And I love my team and I love having a vision. There's so much of it that I liked. So I created a book called Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be my next thing. So I published the book and it was incredibly well-received 
but not a bestseller and not the foundation of the like the path to escape. I'm like, this is going to be all the stones. I'm just going to walk on these mastering my mistake stones and I'm going to end up in a different place. It's going to be incredible. That's not what happened. Um, I did the book. It was great. And it, that was it. Uh, and so then I started literally a year and a half of breakfast with people saying, I love my job. It's so amazing. But at some point, I'm just thinking that maybe a lot of hedging, hedging, hedging. What job do you think I could do? And do you have any jobs in that arena that you could think of for me just to help shape my thinking? So there was a lot of foundational work. I will just say now having um, you know, made the pivot and then giving a lot of, because I do a lot of coaching, so a lot of coaching on what comes next, that approach, part of it was good and part of it was not good. The part that was good is it's fantastic to always be talking to people. I hedged so much because I felt so guilty. And I thought if anyone found out that I was interested in leaving food and wine, re reflect badly on me and on the brand and could have terrible consequences. That's not so. Everyone should always be talking to people to find out what else exists in the world, just to open their mind to the possibility. It doesn't mean you have to do something. So that was one thing that I would I learned from. And the second thing that I learned from um, when I talked to a friend who's a headhunter, he corrected me when I said, what do you think would be good for me? You know me, like, you know my background. And he said, you will never, ever get a good answer to that question because no one can tell you what to do. I mean, there's processes and steps and a coach can help you. I'm not saying no one, but the person you go to or have a half hour call with and you just can't say to them, you're a smart person. You have a great view of the world. What do you think for me? So you need to go very directed, even if you don't know. So you have to come up with, you know, three, I want to have these three things in a job. And I, my thought would be X, what do you think? And you can get feedback. So it took a year and a half of that. And people not really, like I didn't come up with something that I thought was a great path. However, at Food & Wine, we had launched uh, a restaurant called Chef's Club with the St. Regis in Aspen. And I had done the food programming for that because the idea behind it was to have Food & Wine Best New Chefs have dishes on a menu. So you could see, you could taste four different chefs' food all in one place. They brought that concept to New York and I became creative director of that concept. So the shortest answer to your question is the pivot was quite easy because I was so ready. Figuring out the right thing to do took more time and I didn't find a very satisfying answer. But at some point I felt I need to leave. I'm going to leave for something. This is the best I can do right now. And I'm going to, to jump and from there, I'll figure out what I'm going to do. Um, I didn't have any thought in my mind that I would leave food and wine for nothing. Like I could not imagine giving up that job and not having a job for so many reasons. Um, but that next job was horrible. And that was the most freeing thing that has ever happened to me in my, literally my entire life was having a terrible job from which I wanted to flee 
because I'd given up my like status job. I'd taken the patch job that was very sexy actually, but awful. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I can now make, I can make my way. I can make my path. I can do what I want instead of feeling obligated to find the, the next thing. I mean, the thing that surprised me in doing that was I thought it would actually be easy after leaving that horrible job to find something else. And the process of figuring out just took me longer. For a lot of people that get to the point where they're ready to make a career pivot, this is certainly true mid-career, but it's true later in career as well, maybe even more so, I would say. Um, There can be a lot of fear and self-doubt that comes in where you question yourself. I don't know if if you subject yourself to that or not. It's something that's not particularly helpful, but it (laughs) tends to be a very human response to uncertainty and to, you know, really making a big shift that's going to affect not just you potentially, but if there are other people in your orbit, which of course there are, right? Whether you have children or not, there are going to be other people that are affected by your decisions. Maybe talk about if you experienced that fear and self-doubt as you were making this pivot, what you did to help yourself stay centered and plow through that. When I left food and wine, I didn't have a lot of fear. I think that in retrospect was naive and good. You know, (laughs) there's something about not really questioning what's going to happen next because it felt so inevitable to me. Like this was a step that had to be taken. So And I also had a lot of confidence that something was going to happen. I would figure something out. But then, as I said, so so strangely enough, in my own case, the pivot was actually easy. That walking out of comfort into something unknown was kind of like, this is going to be awesome. In the unknown there were many more questions that arose and much more self-doubt. So for example, when you're an editor-in-chief, you don't do the hands-on work, you do the vision work, right? So my role was to have a vision for this brand, constantly reevaluate, constantly move it forward, have a team who would do the, the work and then respond to their work. And so anyone on my team had a very direct skill, right? someone who could design an amazing layout, someone who's an incredible editor, someone who's a great copy editor, take your pick, test kitchen. And so I left that job feeling like, oh my goodness, I actually have no skills. I mean, I've done this for 30 years and I have zero, zero marketable skills because for me to go take a job, it has to be um, a vision job. And then to do a vision job in this economy, um, essentially meaning the digital economy, I would need to care about digital just in terms of having the brand have the widest expression of itself. And that doesn't interest me, which was just, that was a moment of deep concern. And not in a woo-woo way, but I did that thing that everyone tells you to do, which is I just kept moving forward. I, I just never stopped saying, well, what do I want to do today? Who would I like to reach out to? What is it that is inspiring me? How am I going to put that in motion? And by being in constant motion and engagement and trying and testing, I have over time arrived at a suite of things 
that I deeply love. And in fact, by taking that approach, which is doing something that you love and building on that thing that you love, I never had days when I hated what I was doing. I had days of massive anxiety, like, is this ever going to turn into anything? Like, what is the point of this? Uh, I don't know. But I just have to, since my personal approach is not the let's get to look from the outside, make a plan, then work to the plan. If that's not my approach, it's just never going to be. Um, and I have to live it, do it, breathe it, see it, and then do that again to find my way. That's how it ended up working out for me. And uh, I always was working with the things that I cared about the most and where I saw an opportunity, something that had been missed. And in my case, that meant focusing on women and marginalized communities and sharing their voices. Um, one of the things about having had a platform that somewhat carries with you uh, is that you are able to gift that platform to others. And so that became the heart of the work that I wanted to do in many, many ways. And also key, I didn't want to work for a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love, I love that answer. It also touches on something that is a really fundamental element of this podcast. And you and I had a chance to chat about this briefly before we we hopped on this morning, but it's this notion of influence and both how you build it, but also in your case, how you've used that influence, how you've taken influence that you built over a really long and successful career, and then how you share that with other people. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about influence and how you think about it and how it helps to maybe inform the work that you're doing now, which I want to talk about in a more specific way next. <laughs> Influences has become more tricky, I would say, in a way. When I became the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine, there were maybe two other publications that shared that specific kind of spotlight. And it was easy enough with that platform and with that distribution and with that network to build influence and the way in in that case it was spotlighting extraordinary talent and the influences showing millions of people great great work great restaurants great travel destinations and then having the readers or the online you know like whatever our entire universe of people turn up at those restaurants i mean we changed lives for those best new chefs, the old, the past best new chefs would give advice to the new best new chefs because it's so world changing. The amount of attention you get, the number of people who turn up at your door, the partnerships that come your way. So I would say in, in my case, it's just the food and wine timing um, and the platform, which was to reach like, they say that the Cirque was 7 million, which is a pass around circulation, but let's take it as it's, smallest it was like 1.2 million and you're you're you have all those people who you get to influence and it was there was just less noise when i think about influence today there's so many levels because obviously they're the mega 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 influencers there's people who are paid just to be influencers um and you know they they have their audience and they do it like on a micro scale 
or they do it on a macro scale, it depends who you are. So I, I think building influence today is more nuanced. My approach, partly out of realism, is I want to influence my sphere. And if I can get bigger than that, great. But my goal, if I wanted to influence more people, I would have to find a platform. And that's so for anyone who's trying to build influence, either you yourself have to have the thing that's sticky enough and you yourself have to want to really be a slave to the pr production point of view, promotion, partnership. Um, and it's a big job, even if it's just as anyone knows who's doing it. Like It's very hard to do that lightly and have influence. Um, you know, the easier way is through partnership. And then you have to give something in the partnership, like what's your value. Um, and then you have to know who you're trying to influence and how, how broad that is. So for example, you could influence the life of your community on a school board. You could influence who's, you know, where people are eating in your neighborhood or your state or a country, but I think you need to choose what's important to you and then what you're trying to say with your influence. Cause if you don't know what you're saying, you're not influencing anybody. You're just sort of chatting. Right. So having a point of view and then developing credibility around that point of view, whether it's influencing on a micro scale or whether it's trying to have a really huge platform. You know, a lot of times I feel like we talk on this podcast and there are different ways, right? Anyone can have influence with the people around them. So, you know, it's, you know, do you want to be a macro influencer or do you want to be somebody who has influence with the people around you and have credibility and be the kind of person that they gravitate toward? I feel like from your perspective, you have both. And I had a chance to talk to, you know, a couple of former colleagues, some younger folks who had worked for you, um, who I think had a chance to be mentored by you. Um, mentorship has been a big part of your life. It still is. Um, maybe let's pivot and talk a little bit about that before we talk about Zine and the podcast, both called Speaking Broadly, which are fantastic. But let's talk about mentorship and why that's important and how, to, how you think about that. And maybe some advice that you might have for mentors and mentees. Mentor and influence are, to me, somewhat inextricably linked my ability to help someone realize their dream or support them as they chase their dream is a personal value. I don't know that everybody needs to have a personal mission, but it does make waking up and figuring out what you want to do that day, if that's how you're choosing to figure out how you're spending your time, what gives you value. And in my case, I want to make the world a more habitable place. And that means habitable for humans who are in it. Like how do they find personal satisfaction? It's very hard to be in this world if you don't feel a sense of satisfaction and personal um, joy and then habitable in the environment. I think if, you know, we don't solve the problem of the environment, we, we're not going to be here and we won't know it, but it would be a tragedy for that to happen. Um, and so the mentoring that I do is really trying to extend the generosity of like, how can you have a better way of inhabiting this world? So it's central to what I do. It is interesting because I've been asked many times, 
how do you get a mentor? Like, how does one get a mentor? And in my view, you don't go to walk up to someone or see them at a panel and say, hey, will you be my mentor? And you don't really call someone your mentor who, you know, you've had one or two exchanges with. Like mentorship is a, a sort of a long-term commitment to co-growth. The thing that I find about anyone that I mentor is that they give me so much. And with the coaching that I do, because of the way that I do it, and it's very, um, it's specific it's not necessarily a year long as people very much in this industry some of the people i'm closest to are who are people who i've shared my thoughts on how they can you know move forward and they have helped me and not it's not tit for tat it's just like these relationships build and nothing that's positive goes just one way so mentorship is a two-way street always really important to remember like it's not what are you going to get it's like oh who's someone who i can give something to and they can give me something as well the way that I think that you do find a mentor, since I've just told you how you don't, um, the way that you do find a mentor is you open your mind to the relationships that feel like they have potential. And then you invest in those relationships that have the potential. And it's that investment. And then the communication, like if you want to learn something specific and more. But many times mentorship is someone outside your immediate group of friends and colleagues who has an outside point of view and is going to support you and give advice. It doesn't have to be the person inside your organization at the office. Like that's something else. It can be a mentor, but I think mentors come from all places as long as you're open and as long as you're willing to give and receive. Yeah. And you, you hit on this a couple of different times, building that relationship. Is it a two-way street? Is it something that really solidifies you and the other person, whether you're the mentor or the or the mentee, I think is such an important point. Okay, let's pivot and talk about a couple of your newer projects, your zine, which is a term of art. I have to admit, I thought it was just a cute way of describing a little magazine, but it's not. It is a term of art, everybody. Dana has a zine, which is called Speaking Broadly. It is fantastic. You can order it on her website. And I'll include a little link where you can do that. It's terrific. Then she also has a podcast. Talk about both those pieces, why you made those decisions, and maybe how they fit together. I created a podcast, that podcast called Speaking Broadly, about, I don't know, six months or a year after I left Food and Wine. Because when you're an editor for decades, you just want to share stories. And the, I, I would be walking around and I'd say, There's a, that's a story I want to share. And the question I asked myself, was what is the thing that I have control over um, that I can get out in the world and share these stories? And if I don't want to be a pitch monster and I don't want to, you know, write because I don't consider myself a writer, what what is the way to go? And because this was whatever six seven years ago, um, I'm like podcasting, of course. And there's a really wonderful um, network called Heritage Radio Network that produces and distributes uh, food-oriented uh, podcasts. And so I called up the um, the head of HRN, and I was like, I would love to do a podcast. And she's like, I would love you to do a podcast. What would you like it to be? And so I made a list of 20 people I wanted to interview, and I looked at that list, and I said, oh, my goodness. But they're all women. I mean, there's one man, to be fair. But they were all women, 
And the reason I wanted to tell the story is the reason an editor ever puts a group like that together is to say, well, who haven't I heard from? Who needs to be heard from? Like what stories need to be told that haven't been told? That's my editor's hat like every day of the week. I never want to do a story that's been heard before. And so I came up with this idea for speaking broadly. And I, I love talking to these women. Every year, I've changed that podcast a little bit. The first year, because I was in the midst of what am I ever going to do with my life, uh, I interviewed, I don't know, 30 different women who all had different jobs in food. And it's like, are you my job? Are you my job? Are you my job? I just like had them on just so I could learn, like, do you have a job that I might want to do? Um, it was better than those breakfasts where I was too open-ended. It was very direct. What do you do? And could I possibly do it? And then... The second, year. and then we we all we all get the benefit of your learning, yeah. which is amazing. Right? We get to be at I breakfast mean, with you. Yeah, that's the great. The point was it, anything that would benefit me like that, it would benefit the audience. And interestingly, the audience was probably like twenty um, twenty eight to thirty five year olds. And I found uh, have found during this entire time, I have so many friends in that age group. They're like almost half my age, but we are going through similar things, which is just rethinking and um, being very open. And people just loved hearing those conversations because so many people love food and they don't like the job they have and they want to see what else they could do. Uh, and then the next the next year was devoted to um, the intersection of sort of personal stories and food. Um, because at, at that point, I was like, oh, this is really hard to figure out. And so that journey was um, recorded in you know dozens of interviews, and we heard some amazing stories. And at that point, I thought, oh my goodness, there are so many great stories here, but people might not be listening to minute thirty-two of the podcast. You know, I don't know how you feel about that, but you know, people might listen to a good open, but then you know they they go do the laundry, whatever, or they get out of the car. So I decided I really wanted to share those very moving, uplifting, and personal stories in a print product because it would stay for, I mean, not stays for as long as someone has it on the coffee table, but it just felt like it was more accessible, more approachable, and more open. And my idea was to do something that was very rough. And then I met Megan Bennett, full stop. Megan Bennett is a creative director of the zine, and she transformed my very small mimeographed idea. I just want to get it out. I'm going to like drop it, you know, on in restaurants and on doorsteps to, oh, wow, we're going to do something really beautiful, very polished, and you're going to make this more than I could have ever imagined. So we created the zine. Um, I created the zine, speaking broadly. Our timing was impeccable in some ways and disaster in others, which is to say we were about to send, we were one month from sending to the printer in March, 2020, we were supposed to launch the zine April, 2020. And of course the pandemic came, we put it on hold. I thought, well, that's it. Uh, just like we did all that work. I feel terrible. The contributors did so much work. Megan did so much work, I did so much work. Um, and I put it aside and two years later, Megan said, I think it's still good. I think we can still share it. And I sent it to some people and said, are we crazy or can we still publish this thing? And what was, and the answer obviously, because it's in print and you've described it, yes, we can publish this thing. The 
part that was interesting to me as a magazine editor, like a 30-year magazine editor, was I intentionally with the zine was taking on timeless, not timely topics. And in the magazine, because you do it every month and because the readers want something new, you're always searching out the new. But that means that anyone who's uh, been around for 10 years, they can never get their story told. No one's interested in them. They don't have the news. And so everything in the zine was a counterbalance to everything that I had done in traditional media. Instead of having a clean, simple design, it has a chaotic design. Instead of being sort of elegant, it's like very bright to the point where my mother's like, I can't read this. Who's this for? What's the title mean? <laughs> Just like, anyway. Um, but that's another thing. So uh, all the ways in which I made it the anti-magazine actually gave it a longer life. And we published it in 2022. So sort of talk us through what comes next. Are there other uh, issues of the zine that are coming? And sort of how does it differ from, if it's timeless and something that can sit on the shelf, how does it differ from a book? Like, why not do a book? Why do a zine and not a book? Sort of talk us through the considerations. This is a great question. What's next? I just was in a two-day self-imposed workshop with Megan, and our next zine is about the intersection of forest and trees, uplift and food. So broadly at the heart is about uplift and uh, mantras that make you live your best life and some great food experiences. So it's your inner life and your outer life. And the second zine is about your inner life, but seen through the lens of trees, because a tree, Hmm. if you think about it, trees have long lives. They're really adaptable. They have the imprint of every season. They're integrated with their community. They're both like protection and stalwarts. So the idea of seeing humanity through the life of trees, the trees aren't judgmental. They're just there. They're trees. And then food in, in, in forests. And that's the pleasure of, you know, experiencing the forest and eating food from the forest and feast from the forest. And so that's what's next. The reason it's not a book is that I'm interested in collecting different points of view as opposed to having a singular point of view that where I would be the person who writes through the whole story. I want and uh, I could do something that was a collection of essays, but books generally don't sell as well or readers aren't as interested in that. And my real goal is to take this idea of something that we kind of take for granted, which is trees, and give the readers a way to experience it. So it becomes almost like a guide in a workbook. And yes, there are books that are guides, but this just has so many things going on. It's better as a zine. That was my decision. Yeah, I love it. The question that we're asking, which arose from the first scene, is relates back to your question about influence. How um, how will this be distributed, um, and how will it be paid for? Because the first one, I made all the investment up front, and then we got we sold copies and we covered our costs. <laughs> but the next one, I'm hoping to figure out a better distribution platform, and maybe some partnerships. So. That's one piece of the many ways that I'm spending my time, and I'm very excited about it. 
Yeah, I love that. So if you could give a piece of advice to someone who does not have your platform, which let's face it is most everyone on the planet does not have your platform and your level of influence or your background, but wants to start a zine maybe to help her promote her business or to build credibility or an idea, maybe a piece of advice around how or whether to do something like that. I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, <laughs> people come to me all the time and they say, should I start a podcast? And then I'm like, I mean, there's a lot of questions I'd ask before I started a podcast. Um, I would love to know, you know, your thoughts on it. It's all about the, building the audience and building the connecti- connectivity. But if you have um, a product and you want to create a scene, or if you have an idea and you just want to get it out in the world and share it with people, it's one of the things, just like the podcast, that you can do on your own. You don't need a partner. I mean, I had a partner in a designer that was very helpful. But I think that putting things between pages allows you the ability to have your vision come through and to communicate very narrowly and to have something that is somewhat lasting. And the way to get started is the way I would get started in any project, which is number one, what's your goal? Why are you doing it? And if you can't really answer that, you should put it off the table. Like what's the specific goal with the specific reason I would want to put something in print? Then the second thing, once you figured out what your goal is, I would ask myself, what is the vision? Like what's the unifying unifying principle that is the purpose of the actual words? Not the goal of I'm trying to sell things or I you know, want to, share my kids' pictures, but what is it that unites the tone so that you have a way to think about what you're writing um, or who you're asking to write or what type of images you're going to use? And so that's sort of like, what's what's your mission? Once I figured that out, I would start down the content road. Like, so what am I going to include now that I figured out those two things? Like, what absolutely is necessary, and then run each of those ideas past those first two things. Is it hitting my goal? Is it aligned with the vision mission? I just did, as I said, two days of workshop, and I and three quarters of the way through, we had this brilliant idea, and then I woke up the next morning, and I was like, wait a minute. One quarter of that is does not align with the two, you know, with the mission and the goal. Have to go rid of that, go back at it. Um, and then simultaneously or you need to figure out the printing and the distribution, right? So that is easy enough to accomplish because you could do it with a real, with a, a printer in your, you could do it with a local printer, you could do it with a national printer. You can, um, so solving that question, how, how is it going to go from your computer to the printer and then the, the printer to how it's going to be distributed? So for example, if you have a business um, and you're shipping things out in boxes all the time, and it's going to go in the box. Your distribution's awesome. In my case, the um, I was about to be included in the New York Times, which was amazing. It was like a life highlight, right? I get to be in the New York Times. But I had my thought was I was going to distribute from my apartment because I was going to save on the distribution costs. And Megan was like, I don't think you want to do that. I'm like, I do, I do, I do. She's like, I really, really don't think you want to do that. And she convinced me on a Friday night, she called a distributor in Maryland, Lori Industries, and said, you know, can we work out a deal with you? 
we had a deal in place by Saturday morning and, you know, the, and we had the times piece on the Monday. So we squeaked by, but the distribution turns out to be a very big part of this. I bring it up partly because I had no idea, but when I look at the overall PL, the distribution piece is actually quite expensive because um, it's housed someplace and then you have to have it shipped. Um, anyway. Um, I have I have visions of boxes in your apartment, you know, thousands know. and thousands of copies in your apartment. Like, <laughs> and I'm happy to take them to the post office. And she's like, you're really not. You're not going to be happy to take yeah. them to the post office. <laughs> that would get to be overwhelming very, very quickly, I would think. <laughs> okay, that's amazing advice and such great perspective um, for folks that may be thinking about going down this path. I have loved this conversation. I love your focus on so many things, your commitment as a mentor, your focus on creativity, using your influence to help other people. Really, really a beautiful conversation. I'm so grateful. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. And thank you to Southern Sea for like having us meet each other, which just was a great joy to be there and lovely to be on your podcast. I love being the one who's not asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm really grateful. And I know the Southern Sea is as well. Friend, thanks so much for joining me today for episode 233, my conversation with Dana Cowan and the first in our collaboration series with the Southern Sea. You'll find links to the Southern Sea, to Dana's zine and her podcast in the show notes for this episode. And of course, the best place to find the show notes is on my website at she said she said podcast.com. Just click on episode 233. There, you will also find a free downloadable transcript of this episode as well. And friend, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing a little bit of love with your favorite podcast host in the form of a review. Or of course, you can send me a message via the contact link in the show notes or message me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. I would love to hear from you. Until next week, you take care, and I'll talk to you soon. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.